0: Good morning. Good morning, man! Isn't it wonderful to have such a beautiful day? To get to come to church finally, to uh, be together. Though for those of you who are watching online, we're just thrilled that you're here with us today. Um, this is going to be a great passage of scripture. Uh, not that any aren't, but this one in particular really spoke to me this week as I was doing my preparation. Uh, my name is Dave Foster. I'm one of the pastors here at Parkview, pastor of uh, Family Ministries. And uh, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you realize that we've been walking through uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And uh, as we've been doing this, uh, we're just kind of getting to understand uh, some of the problems that that church has had and the need for Paul to check in on them and encourage them and give them some direction. Uh, What we're going to do today is we're going to be looking at chapter 2, starting in verse 6. But before we get there, I'd like us to kind of remember what has happened so far. We have to back up a little bit. Remember, this is a letter, right? It's not a reference book. It's not an encyclopedia. It's not a theology book, even in that way. This is a letter written with care, with love, with divine inspiration from an apostle that is dedicated his life to serving others and who fondly remembers the church that he planted in the city of Corinth. And so you can't just jump in into the artificial divisions of the chapters and verses as if it would make sense. Just think of a letter that you wrote and somebody comes along and says I'm going to start on page two about the third paragraph and I'm going to pick it up from there. So just in case you haven't been here or your memory is like mine, it's full of holes. You, we're going to just back up a little bit, all right? We're going to go to chapter 1, verse 18 to start today. And I'm just going to read this for us. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the key reference point for this entire letter. In fact, what Paul's going to do, and as we are going to discover as we preach through this book throughout this coming winter and maybe even into the spring, is that Paul is going to try to explain what he means by that kind of a different statement. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. Uh, The word term that he uses for the word word he could have used a couple of different words in the original Greek language here but he picked one that is full of meaning right I call this a suitcase word right it's like if you're getting ready to go on a trip and you're going to be gone for a couple of weeks and you're trying to decide what should I put in my suitcase you get it out you put it on your bed you open it up and you're thinking well I have to be ready for all contingencies right now this is going to be a a marvelous job of engineering because you're thinking I've got to take stuff for uh, in the especially in the fall you know something for cool weather possibly cold depending on where you're traveling to something for warm weather business casual uh, fine dining uh, going out and playing uh, games or sports uh, and pretty soon you realize your suitcase is packed And as you zip it up, you look behind you and you see that your closet, most of the stuff that you normally wear, is gone. It's in the suitcase. The dresser drawers, they're empty. They're in the suitcase. Paul's doing that with this word. For the word, he uses the term logos, for the logos, the word of the cross. Paul's going to start unpacking his suitcase through the rest of this book. He's going to unpack a little bit every time that he gives an address to his beloved people in Corinth. But what is he saying in this particular point is that the understanding of the cross, what that unpacking means is foolishness to people who don't understand it. It's foolishness to the world. It's foolishness to people who do not have a relationship with Christ. That's what he means by those who are perishing. There is a location in Rome. Uh, the whole Roman Empire, of course, is what Corinth is part of. I mean, it's, it's located there. But in the capital of that empire, in the city of Rome itself, there is a section of the city in the ancient days, um, probably, let's just look at maybe 60 years before the time of Christ, called Esquiline Hill. It's one of the seven hills of Rome. And just outside of the city walls, in that part of Rome, uh, there was a special rebuilding project going on. Uh, There was a lot of activity. People were leveling the ground. Uh, Beautiful new trees were being planted. Shrubs were being planted. There was all kinds of uh, thinking going into the public works that might be put in there. Uh, And it needed to be done because no matter how much they tried to beautify this area of Rome, there was still a problem. According to Tom Holland in his book, Dominion, this about 60 BC was being converted from a killing ground into a beautiful area that the city of Rome could use because as the city was growing and expanding, they needed all of this area. Previous to this point though, And the smell in the area would give it away, was this was a place where criminals were executed. This was a place not where Roman citizens were killed, not where people who had title or rank or even normal everyday hard-working people. This was the place where the lower caste people of the empire of Rome itself were murdered. And the Romans— had come up with an amazing uh, device of punishment, of execution. Um, we call it the cross. They called it the crux. The crux. It was as most of us are familiar with, uh, that, that device. Two pieces of wood hammered together, and a person would be affixed to it. Now, they designed this to be a warning They tried to think of what would be the most painful, despicable, shameful way to execute somebody and their great engineering minds that the Romans had, they developed the crux. Now this was only for slaves. This was only for people who had rebelled against the empire. Uh, The Romans made such good use of this that there are many historical accounts of roads having lines of crosses along the side of it, where the legionnaires, the the army of Rome, had already conquered, maybe against uh, an uprising or rebellion, and those who had rebelled would be crucified and hung on this device, and you could just see it going off into the horizon, and they had two or three modifications of this particular device, and I'm not going to go into details of it today because they're quite gruesome. But just needless to say, this part of Rome was reserved for that kind of execution. In fact, the Roman Empire was built upon the back and labor and sweat of slaves. And if you're going to use that many slaves, you have to think of a way to keep them in line. And the whole reason the cross was created was with the thought that if slaves could see that their cost of rebellion, their willingness to be disobedient to their master's, would result in this particular cruel form of death. No exceptions. You would be affixed to a cross, you would be placed outside of the city walls, because another thing that the Romans valued was a sense of order, a sense of peace. Uh, Every society values something, or maybe several things. But the Romans, for 300 years before Jesus to 300 years after Jesus, they valued civil order, peace. And any slave that would dare disrupt that, anybody who would rebel against the empire, making the lower officials look bad, all the way up to the emperor himself, they would find themselves in this section of Rome. Uh, they didn't like to look at it They didn't even like to think about it. In fact, if you read ancient Roman writers, uh, historians specifically, sometimes they try to give credit for the invention of this crux to people like the Persians or the Greeks, someone much more crude than themselves. Uh, In fact, you find hardly any description of the cross in any of their writings, but it was there. It was part of of their history. It's not until you fast forward some 60 years that we begin to see historical accounts, specific historical accounts, in fact, four of them, of this crucifixion. And those four historical accounts we find right here in the New Testament, right? We find them in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, they're not getting talking about crucifixions happening on Esquiline Hill, They're looking at another place outside of the city walls, right? Outside of the walls of Jerusalem. A place called Golgotha. Literally the place of the skull. The place of death. The Romans had taken already the pattern they had for execution of those who would dare rebel against the empire and they had transferred it to the most probably rebellious province within the entire empire. And they had created a killing ground right there, outside of Jerusalem. And it is the historical account that we find in the Gospels that a man by the name of Jesus is being forced to carry the patribulum, the short piece of the cross, upon his shoulders. You see, this rural preacher from a nowheresville place called Nazareth up in a province that no one cared for Galilee had dared to come down to Jerusalem. And not only had he caused a ruckus among his own people by claiming to be some kind of God, but he had also caused disruption for the empire. He had broken the civic peace. And as such, he had incurred the debt Of the penalty for such behavior. He was going to be crucified. And because he claimed to be the king of the Jews, uh, the Romans felt very justified in placing such a crown upon his head made of thorns and putting around his whipped back, bleeding back, a robe, mocking him as a sovereign because he was on his way to meet his death. Carrying that short piece of the cross on the road while People threw stones and curses were thrown at him, and dogs barked, and he stumbles and he falls, and people laugh, and the soldiers are whipping him and telling him to get up and move. He slowly makes his way to the place of the skull. And when he gets there, they stretch his arms out, right? They do what they do to all slaves they nail them to the cross, they cross his ankles. Put another nail in there, and they put that cross through leverage, hoisting him up in the air so all can see his nakedness, his shame, his blood, and that cross hammers into its socket. This is what's deserved. The Romans probably didn't even blink an eye. They'd seen this so many times. Instead of being at the heart of Rome, off on Esquiline Hill, now we're here in Jerusalem. Death for anyone that rebels against the empire. Death for anyone that disrupts the civic order. This Jesus was getting what was deserved. But then the story doesn't stop there. Our four historical accounts, those Gospels, they proceed on and they talk about the fact that just a few days later when the women come to the tomb expecting to do some anointing of the body taking care of some small details that hadn't been taken care of on the night that Jesus finally died, they find what? They find an empty tomb. He's not here. What? He's gone. Now Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, he would have been trying to proclaim this story to the people of Corinth. And he would have been telling that all over the city and to anybody that would listen, starting first probably in the synagogue, but then moving out among the Greeks. And the Greeks thought of themselves as being the most intelligent, wise people of the empire, even more so than the Romans. They took great pride in their Sophia, their wisdom. They were sophisticated philosophically. And Paul's saying, what? What? That God became a man who eventually was killed? How? On the cross? By crucifixion? And then that he was raised from the dead? Now, believe it or not, that was not the difficult part of the story for anyone in that day and age to accept. You see, the Romans were quite used to thinking of human beings going ahead and becoming gods. Their emperor was a god. Others in their mythology have become gods. The fact that you want to say that somebody who was worthy, somebody who had achieved status, had suddenly grown divinity from within, that, you know, as crazy that may be, that's not totally out of the realm of possibility. We as a sophisticated, wise, intelligent, philosophical people, we can grasp that. We can understand that wait a minute wait just, just 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 a minute you're trying to say that this person who was worthy of divinity was this itinerant preacher this this slave this this ruckus causer the one who died on that tree no that can't be that can't be. and and this is the crazy part not only was it hard for the greeks to grasp this But the very people of God couldn't grasp it. Well, everything that we've been taught from the time that we were children about the coming Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christos in Greek, he's going to be the conqueror. He's going to come in and free us, right, from this dreaded pagan Roman empire. The burden of these taxes, the insults, the whippings, the capital punishment, it's going to cease when this Messiah shows. And now this group of men are trying to convince us that a man who died on a tree, who was taken out of the city because he was so unclean, he could not be killed within the city, they would not conscience it, They took him and they nailed him like a common slave. And you're trying to say to me, this is God? Back to verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness, it's folly to those who are perishing. We just can't grasp that, what you're saying, Paul. This is amazing. And Paul does a contrastive component to this sentence. But to us... And by us, he says, let me define that for you. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Through that cross, there is power. You can just, I can, I, even though it's been 2,000 years, I can almost hear the gasps. The, what are you saying? How is that instrument of death the symbol of God's power? Paul says, let me explain. So he's unpacked this a little bit already. We're going to jump down to chapter 2, starting in verse 6, and we're going to really get into what he's trying to say to them. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. In other words, you Corinthians, you, you put way too much stock And what the leaders of your society say versus what we're telling you. Sound familiar? How much does our society look to what our athletes, what our celebrities, what our politicians say? Ah, they're smart. They're wise. Yeah, sounds so much better than this whole story about a God on a cross. But Paul says, no, Among the mature, we do not impart wisdom to those who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None, it's an exclusive term, not one, none, right, of the rulers of this age understood this. Not even the Jewish leadership, not the Sanhedrin. No one could understand this for if they had they would not have crucified the lord. Now, he means something different here than that maybe reads when you first look at it. He's not saying if you had understood the power of the cross, they would not have under, they would not have crucified Jesus like, oh, we made a mistake. We didn't recognize him as the savior. Now, he's saying something a little deeper than this. He is saying to them the whole point of the cross, the message of death It's been missed, not just by the Greeks, not just by the Romans, but even by us, the Jewish people. You see, from the Old Testament, we start reading, when we open up to the book of Genesis, and we start understanding God's salvation history. And we read about all the things God did to call his people, his chosen people, together. And how even then, even though he was in the midst of them, they were not able to have full fellowship with him. If you stepped on the mountain of God and you were not worthy, if you hadn't taken your sandals off, it would be a short life, right? If you complained about not getting enough of the right kind of food, uh, it was going to be judgment. If you reached out to steady the Ark of the Covenant while it was being moved, and you were not in the right purification mode, you were going to get zapped. You see, there was a sacrificial system that was required. Animals had to be killed. Blood has to be poured out because our sin, the depth of deceit in our hearts as fallen human beings is such that the most holy God cannot abide by it. Sacrifice has to take place. Before the cross came, everybody who studied and poured their life into the Old Testament understood that a Messiah was coming, but they didn't grasp why he was coming. They didn't understand for all of their learnedness, for all of their sacrifice, for all of their identity as God's people, they didn't grasp why he was truly going to come. They thought he was coming as a conquering hero. But notice what Paul writes here. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. <laughs> Jesus had a purpose in coming. Paul's trying to say to these Corinthians listen, this is not a hard thing to understand, but Jesus came to sacrifice himself. He came as the suffering servant. He came as the Lamb of God, the Lamb that was to be slain. There's only one way to God. God, in His perfect timing and place, had sent forth Himself in the incarnation to go to that cross, take the sins of the world for all time upon Himself, and suffer and be nailed like a slave to a Roman device of torture. If people had really seen Jesus as the Messiah, if they had fully understood who he was, there's no way they could have brought themselves to doing that. What? Yeah, you see... This is the the conundrum here. This is the mystery. Paul refers us to the end of chapter 16 of the book of Romans as well. It finally, the mystery of the ages has been revealed. And that mystery is this. The Messiah had to first come, sacrifice himself, die, right? And give his life as a ransom for many. He had to offer himself in our place and then he quotes but as it is written what no eye hath seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him wow we often take those verses and we rip them out of context don't we we say them at funerals we say them when we're doing uh, prophecy conferences we're thinking about heaven oh yeah when I go to heaven Jesus already said he's going to prepare a place for me. What kind of place is that going to be? Oh, you can't imagine. It's going to be so wonderful. And you know, truthfully, it probably is. But it's not from these verses that we should get that. These verses, we've got to put them back in their context. What they're saying is that no one, no one grasped the true purpose of the Messiah when he came the first time. No one understood that his purpose was to die, and nothing was going to stop that from happening. We couldn't grasp it. We, we just, our sin is that bad, that God himself has to die for us? Yeah, it is. Oh. And now we live on this side of the cross, right? Those who lived before the cross, if they were going to be obedient, it was by faith, just like Abraham but they didn't have the value of seeing the cross. Those of us who are alive on this side of the cross, we now know the entire story. As God developed it, the Savior had to come. And even though he was offering the kingdom, it seemed like, and even though he preached great sermons and cast out demons and healed the sick and fed the the hungry, it's really a short period of time basically three years and he found himself as we said earlier stumbling along the road to Golgotha but it was his will it was his father's will remember his prayer in the garden the night he was arrested father you know let this cup pass from me but not my will your will the mystery of the ages was coming true and why why didn't people grasp that because if they had they would not have crucified him they if they really seen him as god they couldn't have handled it but jesus knew the truth jesus did what he had to do and more importantly the disciples understood that truth and now they were telling the world you are living in such a time that the mystery of the ages has been revealed. No eye hath seen nor ear heard. This is new. In the Corinthians, they're listening to Paul's letter being read out loud, and they're thinking, whoa, we love wisdom. We love intelligence. You mean this is something we can participate in? Absolutely. You can become believers in Jesus Christ. You can have access to God the Father. He has done this for you. It's possible that you're listening this morning online or maybe even sitting here this morning and you've never made that decision. You've never said to God, God, I I can't do it on my own. I understand now what you had to do, why that cross is so important. You see, the early church, you'll find almost no depictions of the cross for the first two, three hundred years of the church. It was too painful. It hurt too much. I mean, there were still people alive who were there or had relatives that were there. And when they told the story of the cross, it was with tears. It was with pain. Peter, the leader of the church at this time, he would have to share how he denied his Lord three times just before this happened to him. He didn't even get it. But then about 300 to 400 AD, we start seeing pictures of the cross popping up. People are making depictions of it. And people are beginning to see it as a symbol of power, a symbol of their faith. And it is. But it will always be a stumbling block to the rest of those who do not believe. Today, turn on the TV, watch a TV show. You can't help but see all kinds of people wearing crosses around their necks, right big jewelry ornate jewelry from people who have no idea what it is they're carrying just like paul is saying it is folly it's foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of god it is the revelation of the mystery that god has kept hidden from his people until the time when jesus was here amazing if you've never understood that it is our challenge to you today to take this opportunity to confess your sin and that's part of it you have to say i needed that cross i need that cross because there's nothing i can do to pay the price for my sin we're that deceitful we're that dark our hearts are so black that even though god woos us and pursues us we have to confess to him my brother asked me that when he led me to the Lord back in the 70's he said Dave there's one caveat here I don't think he used the word caveat he was only in ninth grade but uh, he said Dave there's one thing you have to do you have to confess that you're a sinner and I looked at him and I remember I laughed seriously (laughs) this is a big deal (laughs) I am a sinner I know I'm a sinner There's no one's going to dispute that I'm a sinner. If that's the only thing I have to say, then sign me up. And Dean said, that's right. And then he said, now then all you have to do is say, God, you're offering me a great gift through your son, Jesus Christ. Please forgive those sins and be my Lord and Savior. Probably about a 20-second prayer. And I got to walk through the mystery of the ages. I got to identify with that cross because I realize that now for the first time it made sense. My place as should justly have been because of my sins on that cross had been taken by God who became a man to endure what we endure, to suffer what we suffer so that he could pay the penalty for our sins. It's real easy. God please forgive me for my sins father i accept the free gift of salvation through your son jesus christ just a quick prayer if you haven't done that do it now right no reason not to it's amazing ah and then paul's going to wrap this up with a second point here if we re- keep reading down verse 10 And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom. Corinthians, drop all that philosophy and intellect at the cross where it belongs because we're going to give you a new wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Paul is introducing to these Corinthians in his letter a concept that is rather new. To them, it was brand new. Jesus has been resurrected He sits at the right hand of his Father. But we are not barefoot of God. He has sent his Spirit. And the Spirit has been around. Um, Many people don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. This third member of the Trinity, Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Where it's easy words to say, but who exactly is this Spirit? In the Old Testament, the Spirit, that's usually how he's referenced. Is either God's Spirit or the Spirit... And we see him everywhere from the days of creation on through the scriptures. The Spirit does all kinds of things for God's people. It enhances our ability to perceive things, it gives us the ability to do prophetic speech. The prophets in Hosea and Micah both say, By the Spirit we speak. What they said was divine inspiration. We have the scriptures today, but in that day, when a prophet spoke, it was the words of God. The Spirit gave physical power, way beyond human power. We see Samson ripping down the the temple of the uh, Philistines to deliver his people, as was his job as a judge. The Spirit gave him that power. We see the Spirit being poured out, being poured upon, entering into, uh, washing over. There's all kinds of verbs. I think the other night I counted 15 different verbs that are used to describe how the Spirit comes upon us. But here's the difference. In the Old Testament, the Spirit didn't come on everybody. Only select few. Usually kings and prophets. Prophets. Or other people called by God to do a special thing. We see this in kings. Uh, Saul, who was just a baggage boy, hiding back there with his donkeys, his father's donkeys, was filled with the Spirit, gave him the ability to become the first king. David, before he left his father's fields and his father's sheep, he was filled with the Spirit, according to 1 Samuel chapter 16. By the time that Samuel anoints him as a boy to become king, it says that the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it uses the word mighty in a mighty way, and it says, from this day forward. David is filled with the Spirit. It's not that David was the best warrior, the best musician, that he had the ability to kill giants with a slingshot in and of his own strength. It was that the Spirit came upon him to give him bravery, courage, and accuracy. The Spirit does all these things for us. Uh, the prophets, they have, as we read through, you know, half of the Old Testament is nothing but prophetic writings. And these prophets are preaching sermons to their people directly from God. Repent. Turn your hearts. Destruction is coming. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But they should have every time. The prophets had the ability to speak God's word. We get to the New Testament. And the Spirit takes on a different name. But now he's given the title Holy Spirit. Set-apart Spirit. It's to designate the fact that he is the Spirit. And we see him working in the life of Jesus himself in a mighty way. I would contend that when Jesus came to this earth, he came as a man to demonstrate to us who are saved how we can live. Too often we focus on the fact that he was God. And we say, well jesus is always pulling the god card you know he's always doing these amazing things but most of what jesus was doing was living just like you and me and showing us that the only way that a christian can survive in this world the only way that we can please god is by doing what the spirit tells us to do remember when the angel appears to mary to tell her that she's going to give birth he says you will conceive by whom the holy spirit right As the boys growing up, we're told that Jesus was full of wisdom. It doesn't mean that he read a lot of books and that he listened to wise people. It says it's a passive verb. He was being filled with wisdom. From whom? From the Spirit, right? We can see it when he gets baptized. Jesus comes up out of the water after John the Baptist baptizes him, and we see the Spirit in the form of a dove uh, descending upon him. When he's done... He's being led into the wilderness. By who? For his temptation. By the Spirit. When Jesus does battle with Satan, how's he doing that? By recalling verses, by recalling the Word of God, by the Spirit. When Jesus does ministry, how does he heal? How does he feed the the hungry? How does he take care of people? By the Spirit. When he goes into his Passion Week, and he's going to be crucified according to hebrews he does this by the spirit when jesus is resurrected from the dead how does that happen by god god raises him up it's not an act of his own he is raised by the spirit and when we get into the book of acts oh my goodness hold on buckle your seatbelts. there's over 50 times that it says by the power of the spirit I challenge you, this week, if you don't have anything else to read and you haven't been in your word for a while, just start reading in chapter 1 and take your time. But note down, every time it says, by the Spirit, the early church was illumined, empowered, it was ability to spread the gospel to the world by the Spirit. And Paul is saying this, it's one thing to understand what the role of the cross is, Right? It's one thing that God has revealed this mystery of the ages to us. But you can't get it unless the Spirit reveals it to you. You can't get it unless the Spirit reveals it to you. He says, we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit was from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. What my brother told me about the cross and what I had to do to become a Christian. I think I thought for a long time that it was solely my tremendous intellect that allowed me to grasp these eternal truths. But the truth is, the Holy Spirit had been working on me, softening me up, putting me in a place where I didn't feel like I had any options but to turn to God. And when my brother spoke, he was a Billy Graham right there in my living room. He was a pastor. He was a person of great wisdom, telling me very simple sentences. And they came right into my heart. When you are praying for your relatives and your friends who don't know Christ, do you pray for the Spirit to do a mighty work in their heart? We see the Spirit doesn't just work with individuals. He works with nations. He blesses nations, Right? He brings prosperity. He can bring blessing. He can bring conviction. He can bring revival. The, the idea of awakening is throughout the Old and New Testament, that the work that the Spirit does. We need, boy, do we need something like this in this country today. We need to see the Spirit working. Paul continues on to the end of the chapter and says, "...the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God." For just like the cross, they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And what he means by that is we have the Spirit who allows us to have the mind of Christ what a power what work now sometimes people take these verses and they seem to say well there's a secret knowledge there's some kind of superiority that we can have when we have the spirit Uh, there's a inner illuminate of christians who seem to really walk with god and no no paul says the spirit comes upon everyone who receives jesus christ as his savior the spirit comes upon you and fills you gifts you well, what what gifts oh he gives all kinds of gifts that were not true of you I, I was in high school not that old in Christ yet and my I call him my brother he was my one of my really good friends uh, his mother had been the babysitter for my brother and I as we grew up so we literally lived in the same house for years and This guy, his name was also Dave. uh, He was the one who invited me for the first time to a Bible study. And as we went through life, I was always in that role, that before-the-cross role with Dave. Even though I'd become a Christian, it was hard for him to see that there was a difference, and I suppose it was hard for most people, because I was so young in Christ. But he was a year older than me, and he went off to college. And in that year... God began to work in me in amazing ways. You know, Uh, just things were so different for me. And I was thriving at school. I was thriving in sports. I was deep into the word of God. My girlfriend at the time uh, and I, we, we were leading Bible studies everywhere. We were out doing five Bible studies a week. We just loved the Lord. We were just so excited. And Dave came back for Christmas break from his college And we'd all gone shopping out at the mall. And late that night, we pulled into his driveway, which was a couple blocks from my house. And he was like, Dave, what happened to you? I don't understand. Who are you? See, there was the cross. He saw me on this side of the cross most of my life. But now, God had done a work in my life And on this side of the cross, I was a totally different person. My mom said the same thing. She was 50 years old when she finally asked the Lord to be your Savior. And she would say to my brother and I, the reason I'm doing this is because I see such a change in your guys' life. See, when the, the Spirit enters your life, it's not something that you need to be proud about and think, oh, I have superior knowledge. It's something that happens to each of us as we come to that cross. That's what Paul's trying to say to the Corinthians. Get humble. Let that spirit change you. Discard everything that defines you from before the cross right at the foot of that cross. Uh, for me, it was temper. For me, it was possessions, materialism. For me, it was bitterness, you know, and all this stuff. And I just dumped it. And everyone, Paul says, should dump it. I have to today go back to that cross all the time. If you're a believer here today, the Spirit's probably prompting you at times to say, let's get rid of this stuff, okay? This is something from your before the cross days. It doesn't belong where? In the temple of who? Of the Holy Spirit. That's who you are today. The Word says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't drag it into places it shouldn't be, don't make it experience things it shouldn't experience. Become that new person in Christ. If the understanding of the wisdom of the ages has happened and we need to do business with God and come to grips with that gospel, then you who are believers need to address this second paragraph and realize that the Spirit is indwelling you and gifting you. You should be at minimum manifesting the fruits of the Spirit, right? But also you should be taking your rightful role in God's church and in your community God is going to empower you to do things you never dreamed of I don't care if you're 80 or if you're eight God can take us and say hey you're on this side of the cross whatever you were you're no longer I'm going to reshape you you're a new citizen of heaven you've got imputed righteousness you have the wisdom of God inside of you there is nothing that you once were that you need to still be I am going to do something with you, and do it, be it, in faithfulness. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. I love that last line. Put it, underline it. Put it on your refrigerator. But we have the mind of Christ. Jesus is filling us, so that we have the ability to see him, to understand him. Wow! And there's nothing like it. It led all the apostles to changing the world. Think about that, 12 men. 12 uneducated, except for a couple of them, men, changed the world in a really short period of time for the gospel. What could God do with the congregation, with the congregations in this city? Veritas, Grace, all of them. If we lived like the Spirit wants us to live, If we leave things before the cross, back where they belong, and we have the mind of Christ. What's God asking you to do today? What's He asking you to understand? Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I praise you, Father, for your wisdom and your guidance and your gifts. I pray, Lord, that we will walk after you in all righteousness. Father, those things that are in our life that were pre cross days, May we just vigorously work to leave them at the cross. And instead, Father, may we put on the new man. May we just be filled with your spirit. And may we discern our task, our jobs, our commissions, and be faithful to them. In Jesus' name, amen.